Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoyed the message. Hello and welcome to church. Uh, I hope you are having a uh, good holiday weekend. Um, If this is your first time joining us, I just want to give you a warm welcome and I can't wait to uh, meet you, whenever we open up that is, to actually meet you face to face. Uh, Because one of the difficulties of doing online service is we don't get to see you guys. If you're joining us from a uh, different state or a different country, we also want to give you a warm welcome as well. And our hope and my prayer is that... um, that we can grow together in our love for Christ together. Well, today we're going to be looking at Luke 7, 36 to 50. But before we jump in, I just want to explain what's going on right now. Uh, At this point in our passage, Jesus is getting more and more famous and he's getting a lot of influence. It's kind of like as if uh, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates had this open door policy. They would get all sorts of individuals coming in uh, with an agenda, right? They would have an agenda. Well, that's Jesus. He has this kind of influence and he has like an open door policy and he's teaching everywhere he goes. So people would hear about this amazing teacher with this amazing ministry and they would come from all over, all these places, and they were desperate. And so many people heard of this amazing teacher with this amazing ministry and so they would come to him uh, because they were desperate for healing for some of them. And so you would see and you would read in the scriptures about those that were paralyzed and that were able to walk. There were lepers who weren't touched for many years, and yet here was Jesus who touched them, but also healed them. And then there was this other group of people. Uh, They were just suspicious of Jesus. These were the Pharisees, and they wanted to prove him wrong. And today in our passage, we're going to see these two individuals, Simon the Pharisee, who was just suspicious of who Jesus is, and then this woman who's actually unnamed that was completely transformed by Jesus and what he had to offer. You know, let's jump right in. Our passage, once again, is from Luke 7, 36 to 50. If you're able, please rise to your feet. So I'm gonna read this text, and after I'm finished reading, I'm gonna say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God, and I'll open this up with the word of prayer. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for he, she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at his table with them began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask uh, that you come and meet us just as we are, Lord Father God. We ask that your, that your spirit illuminate the scriptures to what it is that you have to say uh, to me and to everyone who is listening, Lord Father. And we pray, Lord Father, that this time can just be worship to you, Lord Father God. We thank you and we pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, it was in the summer of 2008 when I uh, encountered the first prostitute that I had ever met in my entire life. Uh, I went to a mission trip in India, um, but spent two weeks afterwards in South Korea. And uh, in Korea, one of my friends invited me uh, just to go to a massage parlor. And uh, I was pretty young and naive at the time and um, didn't really know what that meant. Uh, But when we got there, I realized pretty quickly that this place was uh, something else, something else. You know, when I finally figured out where we were and what we were about to do, I ran. I ran because I was angry that I was tricked. Uh, I ran because I was actually sad that these women had to do these things. I ran that I was shocked that this kind of place actually exists in the world. And to be honest, as I share this experience, um, there's quite a bit of shame in revealing to you that I actually went to this type of place. And as you're hearing this, you might be a little shocked as well. Now, it's not that I did anything wrong. I didn't really do anything at all. But uh, just as a Christian, and especially as a pastor, uh, it's a little bit shameful uh, to admit this. Uh, That's actually what I want to address today. And I think that's actually what our passage is telling us. It's teaching us and telling us about shame. This woman in our passage uh, has lived a life of shame. She isn't even named, but somewhere, somehow along the way, uh, we see the fruit of her transformation. You know, she's actually confronted with her shame, and she actually allowed the power of Jesus to literally transform her life. And what we see is the image of her transformation. And I think what our scripture or the passage that we're looking at today is telling us that in order for us to be changed and transformed in the same way as Christians, we must be able to confront our shame, just like this woman did. So how do we do that? Well, our first point is we need the courage to confront our shame. You need the courage to confront your shame. In our story, Simon, the Pharisee, invites Jesus to have dinner with them. And at these dinners, it's not like they're sitting in chairs. They're actually sitting on the ground. They're just reclining on the ground, and they're having, you know, I don't know, this conversation, probably some sort of philosophical conversation, And this woman just bursts through the doors and she goes right up to Jesus. And then somebody, you know, just says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Somebody just blurts that out. How did they even know she was a sinner? Well, I went to high school with about 1,600 students. And that's actually the size, about the size of a a town back then. And so people would be familiar with, you know, those around them. And it's not like high school where you graduate after four years, but they lived there for their entire lives. So they probably knew who she was. They probably saw her. Uh, 
And even if you didn't, you could probably tell what she did just by the way she looked, uh, the way she dressed, uh, you know, even the way she smells. But this scene is incredibly awkward. It's incredibly shameful. You know, it's, it's as if you were in a restaurant eating with a friend and then this woman walks in and somebody just says, hey, look over there, a prostitute. That would be awkward. That would be incredibly shameful. And yet this is exactly what's happening to this woman. And, and yet this is quite normal for her. She doesn't even bat an eye. And back then, the culture was even more conservative than it is today. And so can you imagine the type of judgment people were having, the whispers behind her back, the stares? Such shame. Her identity was steeped in this shame. And it's not like a piece of clothing that she could just take off. This was actually her job. This is what she did. And as you know, a large part of your identity and my identity is actually in our work, right? We find our identity in what we do. Let me ask you this, what's one of the first things you ask when you meet somebody, it's what do you do for work, right? Or if you're in college, it's, you know, what, what's your major? Why do we do this? It's because that, the answer tells us a bit about their identity. You know, depending on the answer, we might think, oh, this person is really smart. This person is driven. Or, wow, she's lazy or he made all the wrong choices in his life. You know, there are are actually some theologians that argue that this woman wasn't a prostitute, that she was an an adulteress, um, because the, the phrase, the woman of the city, is a little bit unclear. But either way, people recognized her and identified her, and they called out her shame for these sins. See, the thing in church is there's this unspoken notion about sin, Right? There's unacceptable ones and there's acceptable ones. Right? In other words, there are sins that you're really comfortable revealing and then there's sins that you wouldn't tell nobody. Right? Acceptable ones might be, I'm too prideful or I'm just not loving enough. But what about addiction to pornography? Addiction to gambling? What about a struggling marriage? What about infidelity? It would take a tremendous amount of courage to confront this and to reveal this. It's because it's shameful. What are you ashamed of? What's that sin that you dare not reveal to anybody else? Because just like the women, you have a choice. You know, you can hide it and pretend like it's not there. You can hide it for a while. Or you can confront it. You know, I shared before that my son, Henry, uh, he has some speech and cognitive um, developmental delays. And uh, I remember, you know, the doctors actually caught it pretty early on. And, um, you know, they asked, do you want to put your son into early intervention? And uh, that's really where specialists come and they assist in his uh, developmental growth. Um, and so he's been on that, in that program uh, ever since. Um, and Henry is actually doing a really great job, and I'm just so proud of um, where he is right now. See, if he didn't get those services, uh, you know, I would bet that he wouldn't be as far along in his development. And yet, I remember, um, you know, once he qualified for these services, the doctor did ask, like, do you want to put him in these services? 
And, and I know that these services, actually, there's, there's a lot of studies that show that they help to promote uh, growth and to help in a child's development. And so, you know, I was like, why would I not put them in these services? Most of them are free. And, you know, I, I asked him this question. I was like, why would I not? And I'll never forget this. He says, you know, some parents, they decline them. And, and I thought about that. Like, why would somebody decline these services? And I realize it's because if you accepted them, you're actually acknowledging that something may be wrong with my child. My child needs more help than the average child. And as a parent, you really want to see your kids reach certain milestones. And when they don't, it's incredibly shameful. And so parents have a choice whether they want to put them in or whether they want to just avoid the situation. And in the same way, this is the choice this woman had. They either had a cho- she either had the choice to listen to what Jesus was saying or she could turn a blind eye and say, my life is not that bad. My sins aren't that bad. But what we see in our passage is eventually she did have the courage She had the courage to confront her shame. And as a result, she is so desperate for Jesus, she doesn't even care what other people say. How is this possible? How is it possible? The answer is actually surprisingly simple. In order to confront our shame, it actually begins by knowing God more. In other words, it's to read scripture more, it's to pray more. Because when we do that, we begin to trust God more. But in order to trust God, we need to know him. Because it doesn't make sense to trust somebody if we don't know them, right? And so I imagine for this woman, this was not the first time that she heard Jesus' teaching. She probably was in the shadows when Jesus was first teaching. She saw the way that he had compassion on the poor, healed the sick. And she probably reflected on her own life. And as she began to know him more and more, she realized this God is so loving, so compassionate. And for her, it wasn't enough just to know him. She needed to do something. Because you see, even the devil knows who God is. In Mark 1, 24, the devil says to Jesus, I know who you are, son of man. But just like Jesus asked the disciples to follow him, she needed to do the same. But in order to do that, she needed the courage to confront her shame. But not only that, she needed the courage to let it go. Our second point is you need the courage to let go of your shame. In order for Jesus to transform your life, you're going to have to let go of your shame. In order for his life-changing work to work in your life, you need the courage to let it go. You see, shame is the result of a past or present sin. And, And the thing is, the tendency of sin is, it's, it's fun. It's a source of comfort. The Bible says it's in our very nature to sin. But in order to live the life that God has called you to live, for me to live, he tells us that this shame is actually not our, our identity. Our identity is in him, so we got to let it go. So no matter how deep or dark your, your shame is, that shameful sin is, he tells us, you got to let it go because you're not, you're not identifying in that. You're identifying in me. In Luke 22, there's a story. Um, once Jesus was apprehended, uh, you know, Peter kind of follows Jesus, and uh, people begin to recognize him and say, hey, 
you're a follower of Jesus, and he keeps denying it. He keeps denying that he does not know Jesus, and he denies it three times. And after the third time, in verse 62, it says that he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly because he was just so guilt-ridden that he denied Christ. And he's probably replaying that instance over and over and over again. And yet this beautiful thing happens in John 21 where Jesus actually restores Peter. He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then follow me. Because friends, the beautiful thing is when you let go of your shame and your sin, you actually have something to hold on to. Jesus is saying, I got you. Jesus is saying, hold on to me. Place your identity in me not your shame. You know, in the movie, The Titanic, uh, there's this final scene uh, where the boat is actually sinking and uh, Rose, uh, one of the main characters, is laying on this like door that's floating and um, she's holding Jack's hand. Jack's the other main character and uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's been over 20 years, so go watch it. Uh, but, you know, the, both of them, uh, she's holding on to him and um, you know, Jack tries to get on to the door, but he's not able to fit and keeps falling in. And so he just stays in the water while she's floating on the door. Um, and some time goes by and uh, things start to get quiet. And that's because people are starting to freeze in the water. And eventually there's this boat that goes by that uh, wants to rescue the people, but it's too late. And actually one of the crew members on the boat says, we're too late. But as they are searching, Rose actually sees and hears this rescue boat, and now she has a choice. She can either let go to be rescued, or she can just hold on. And what she does is she actually eventually does let go of Jack, and she's saved by this rescue boat. Friends, Jesus is calling you to do the same thing, to let go of whatever you're holding on to, and follow him. Romans 8 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With Jesus, there's no shame. There's no condemnation. And what you're letting go is this false identity of who you were and holding on to this identity in Christ. And this identity transforms you. It transformed Moses after he killed his fellow Egyptian. It transformed Paul, who persecuted Christians for years. It transformed Rahab, who was a prostitute, when she made the decision to hide the Israelites. And it transformed this woman. It says, you know, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his face with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. You see, she took this expensive alabaster jar, and it's estimated to be about a year's wage, and she poured it on Jesus' feet. She wept because she was so overwhelmed by the grace that she received, and she rolled down her hair, and she cleaned his feet. This woman let go of her shame, her past, her identity, and embraced the identity that she had as God's child, and she was so overwhelmed, she wept. And for the first time, she was able to be seen for not who she was, but who she could become. 
Because when you let go of your shame and allow the grace of God to take control, he begins to transform you. Because Jesus sees you not for what you've done in the past, but what you can become. Philippians 3.13 says it like this, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Friends, Jesus sees you for what you can become, not what you have done and not your past. Now you might be thinking, I don't have anything to let go of. I'm not that bad. I don't have any shame. Well, you might be Simon in this passage. In 39 says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw him, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. You see, Simon thinks he's doing all the right things. But what he's failed to understand is the depth of forgiveness that's needed for him. You see, it doesn't matter if you owe 50 denarii, 500, or even 5,000 denarii. Compared to the holiness of Christ, nothing is enough. Romans 3.23 says it like this, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. All of us. And for many of you, you think you're like Simon, but the thing is, Simon thinks he understands in this passage, but he actually doesn't. He actually doesn't understand the depth of his own sin. He's not recognizing his own sin, but what he's doing is he's holding on to somebody else's. And he's so caught up in his judgment of this woman that he didn't see the judgment that Jesus was having actually upon him. And then Jesus says this parable of the moneylender, and Jesus is really saying, Simon, you don't understand. You don't see it. See, it doesn't matter if you owe one or 1,000 denarii. You don't understand the depth of sin in your own life and the depth of forgiveness that I have given you. So, I mean, if you understood the depth of forgiveness and the depth of grace, you would be so gracious. You'd be so forgiving. You'd be so loving. There is nothing you can do but come to be and receive this grace. And this takes Courage, friends. That's our third point. We need courage to receive this type of radical grace. Ephesians 2.1 says that you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses, but you were saved by grace, and this is not your own doing. In other words, there's nothing you could have done. You know, in our culture, in American culture, we value our independence so much. And that's why we like driving our cars, right? It's a form of independence. But what Jesus is actually saying is actually counter to our culture. He's saying, you need to have courage actually to be dependent upon me because you can't do this on your own. Friends, you can't do this on your own. This is radical grace. And it's not radical because just because this woman was forgiven, it's radical because none of us deserve this grace. See, just like Jesus sees this woman for who she can become, not who she is. That's how Jesus sees you. That's what grace does for you. 
Friends, if you're struggling right now, and it's just, you just don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, what Jesus is saying, let go and find your identity in me. Receive this grace. Take courage and find this grace. And, and there's an amazing radical result of this grace. The amazing thing is God can use your sin and your shame not only to redeem you, but to redeem others, to minister to others. The thing about this woman is, you know, she, she probably used this perfume probably before seeing a client. And yet, here she is using it to minister to Jesus. This woman probably shed tears because she was so ashamed. And here she is using her tears to minister to Jesus, tears of joy and not of sorrow. And then she lets down her hair, something she used to do to seduce her clients to minister to Jesus and to wash his feet. What this woman does doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody do this? Why would you pour perfume, a year's wage on dirty feet? What a waste. Why would somebody cry tears on feet that were probably covered in dirt and feces and clean it with your hair? Friends, this is the result of amazing and radical grace. It's that song, Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found. But what's more amazing is that this is what Jesus does for us every day. Every day. You know, when people think of the cross and Christ dying on the cross, they think of the physical pain. A lot of us think of the physical pain, but people often forget the immense amount of shame that he had as he hung on the cross. You see, he was beaten. He was bloodied. He was naked. His friends all abandoned him. Hundreds of people mocked him, and they saw him hanging on the cross and not only did his friends and family abandon him, but God the Father abandoned him. And there was just such shame. And yet Christ did this for you. And he did this for me and he continues to do it every day. And he didn't just pour this expensive jar of perfume on our feet. What he gave us was his life. He didn't just cry tears for us. He gives us the living water that cleanses us every day. And his death, it's not like this woman who did it once, but Christ dies for you and me every single day. You see, radical grace and the courage to receive it is finding your identity in Jesus, our security in Jesus. It, it means that we are to be and to have this radical worship like this woman had and to be radically generous like the parable of the moneylender. And the question is, do you want this grace? Do you want this grace? Now, if you're unsure of Christ, you know, I encourage you, please click on that prayer button. We would love to walk with you on your journey, answer any questions that you may have because Christ is so good, is so good. And there's no shame or condemnation. And we would love for you to receive Christ. Friends, today uh, as a symbol of the grace that we have received and continue to receive, uh, we're going to be entering into a time of communion. Time of communion. If you're not a believer, um, you know, we ask that you please refrain from partaking. And it's not because we think we're better than you are. It's simply because it's something the Lord asks only Christians to do. 
Now, if you're a Christian that's struggling, uh, struggling in your faith with some doubts or some sins, you are still welcome to the table. So hear these words. For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which I have broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for uh, your word today, God. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed on the cross, his life, his death and resurrection, We thank you that there is no shame, no condemnation to all that believe in Christ, Lord. And I ask, Lord Father, that you give us this courage and continue to remind us, Lord Father God, to confront our shame, to hold on to you, Lord, and to have courage to receive your grace. Amen. All right, here now the benediction. You know, if you don't know what a benediction is, it's just really a word of encouragement as you go uh, throughout this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you all the days of your life. And all God's people said, 